0: This is an ABC podcast. This is Baby Talk Podcast with Penny Johnston. Today on Baby Talk, we're going to take a look at why the experts may not be so expert when it comes to the care of your baby. A lot of the time on Baby Talk, I've joked about what I didn't know when I became a mother. It was a very steep learning curve and even now I'm still the sort of person that isn't 100% confident in the way I approach life as a parent. I'm always looking for the next expert's advice, still worrying if I'm doing something right. But in reality, I need to remember there isn't anyone that's a better mother for my child than I am. Well, to our next guest, who's made empowering mothers a professional mission. I think she's concerned that we're all looking in too many other places to find answers to our parenting questions, when the
1: answers might very well be in your arms. How can we hand power back? And certainly, really evidence-based information is empowering for parents. But in my work, I'm always inviting parents that woman to simply start experimenting offering ideas around how she might experiment but also acknowledging that some of what I offer might just not seem right for her and her baby and she'll let that go but other things she'll think you know what that's really worth experimenting with in my situation and she'll give it a go for a time that kind of capacity to experiment knowing that as a mum you're the best expert on the baby. Parents are the experts on their own baby. Because there's so much to cover this week I'm not going to waste time with introductions. Let's
0: go straight to Dr Pamela Douglas. It's lovely to meet you and I think it's important to introduce you with your qualifications first.
1: Dr Pamela Douglas, a GP and researcher, CEO of the Charity Possums & Co., an adjunct associate professor at Griffith University School of Nursing and Midwifery, and a senior lecturer at the primary care clinical unit at the University of Queensland. The
0: discontented little baby book. Now, you certainly get top marks for an unusual book title.
1: (laughs) Tell us what we're going to find inside. There's so much conflicting advice that parents receive when they have a baby, And uh, in fact, here we are, Penny, in perinatal mental health week. And actually, this huge amount of conflicting and confusing advice really ramps up levels of anxiety for new parents. And so years ago now, in fact, I've been developing a special interest in this space as a GP and also as an international board certified lactation consultant since the 1990s. I started out as a GP in the the 1980s, but I'd moved into writing this book after years of putting together research in this space that really addressed the conflicting and confusing advice that, that parents receive. So in 2014, the first edition of the Discontented Little Baby book came out, and then UQP, my publishers, bless them, asked me to do a rewrite, and the revised edition has come out now. So... In the book, we look at what might be done, well, preventatively, actually, to make things go as easily as possible when that new little one arrives in the world. But then, of course, what things we might try, what things we might experiment with if we find that things are just a bit bumpier than we'd planned, if we've got an unsettled little one or issues are coming up for us across that spectrum of breastfeeding, cry-fuss problems, sleep, and how does that all tie in with our sense of well-being, emotional well-being day by day, night by night as a mum? And actually, Penny, just to let you know, so the Discontent A Little Baby Book is kind of like a parent's access into the programs that are formerly known as Neuroprotective Developmental Care or the Possums programs, that our little charity, Possums and Co., actually Educates health professionals in and also offers parents programs in both clinical programs through our various clinics, but also just directly available self help programs on possumsonline.com website. So, the discontent a little baby book is like a step into this whole world of holistic, wraparound, evidence based, evolutionarily aligned care for that mother, those parents, when they move into this incredibly exciting, joyful, and challenging life transition. Challenging yeah. is
0: is the word for it, and unexpected, because I kind of feel that things can take you by surprise as a new parent. I mean, you have this vision or this idea in your mind of how things are going to go, and it's not that you're not expecting it to be hard, and it's not as if you are expecting to know everything, but... Just reading some of your examples of interactions with parents literally had me in tears. I just remember stepping back into that phase of like, oh, my, what is going on? How do I fix this?
1: Yeah, yeah. And look, in fact, we're at a time where there's a lot of unnecessary medicalization and overtreatment of our babies when problems emerge. We're wanting to, you know, hand power back to parents and help them make sense of what's going on and try out new strategies in a way that doesn't necessarily require pharmaceutical treatment of the baby or, you know, there's a lot of a surgical treatment of Bubby's mouths happening at the moment, some of which is necessary, but a lot of which is unnecessary. And of course, we, we learnt... In recent years, I'd said it in my first edition of the book, but it's really become mainstreamed now that if we tell women to take foodstuffs out of their diet when they're breastfeeding, unless it's absolutely necessary, you know, we can increase the risk of allergy. So, all of this we talk about in the discontented little baby book, My Reader and Me.
0: come as a surprise to you, Ben, that when I started Baby Talk, which is now such a long time ago, the first topic was colic. This was my stumbling block. And, you know, looking back, I know I had had this perfect baby. The only things that went wrong was the stuff that I personally got my knickers in a knot over you know really seriously mm, I, if I mm. just stepped back and just let him go he would have been perfect but colic was one of those things you know, we yeah. had him sleeping on the cot propped up on bricks and all those sorts yeah, of crazy things yeah,
1: yeah well goodness and that's you know that's the advice that parents were receiving until recently to sleep with with the baby elevated now it's known that that actually can increase for babies but <laughs> But, you know, that's what parents would being told. And the truth is, is, as parents, we just, you know, there's something in us that really dials up when our baby's distressed, when our baby's dialing up. And I'd say that's evolutionary. That's that's hardwired from a biological point of view for us to become upset when our baby becomes upset. It's just knowing how to manage that. Firstly, how to manage what's happening in our our brain and in our sort of body with the worried thoughts but also then having information that can help you make sense of what's going on that unpacks what's going on that's that's reliable and very often reassuring but of course you're wanting your health professional also to be sure not to miss anything that might be going on yes and and this is where parents seek support and receive huge amounts of conflicting advice, a lot of which is really unhelpful, unfortunately, and can actually make things worse, can make babies more unsettled, can worsen breastfeeding problems, believe it or not.
0: And all delivered, yeah. I'm sure, with the, the very best of intentions. And in the, Absolutely. In Absolutely. the 10 years that Baby Talk has been running, like literally things have turned a full 180 on many, many topics and all backed up with research in the past. But all, what we can do is, is keep moving forward with the new information as it comes to
1: hand and try and do the best we can as we move forward. Well, you know, Penny, one of the things I'm often saying to parents is that clinical support in this field of, you know, breastfeeding, feed problems, a baby who's crying and fussing, sleep, has not been a priority. There's just not been the money put into this, which is why then each health professional who is really devoted, you know, everyone you see is absolutely devoted to your wellbeing, the baby's wellbeing. But because there's been this historical failure to really invest in clinical, community-based research around caring for mums and bubs, parents and babies, then each parent is just feeling buffeted around by this this mm. conflicting advice. And of course, a lot of people will tell you that what they're offering is evidence-based. In fact, one of my research heroes, a professor of medicine at Stanford University, talks about the label "evidence-based" as a marketing device, and it, it really often is used that way. Now, you'll get all sorts of packages about, say, what you should be doing with your baby's sleep that are marketed as evidence-based, but but it comes down to a very specific interpretation of the data. And I suppose I would say that the the NDC or Possum's programs and the work that's there in the discontent a little baby book takes the research, takes the data and explicitly interprets it through three theoretical frames actually. So there is evolutionary biology. There's complexity science or dynamic system science, which is really looking at all the multiple things that that can play into a complex situation and how they interact. And then all my work this is very strong in the Discontented Little Baby book, but also in our NDC programs, integrate a new form of cognitive behavioural therapy that people know as acceptance and commitment therapy or, you know, it's technically contextual behavioural science. So these are strategies for managing difficult thoughts and feelings that just inevitably come up through this time of life. And even more so, you know, if we've got a bubby who's, who's unsettled, When you talk about
0: unsettled babies and you you describe some real scenarios of patients that you've consulted with, there's something about being a third-party observer that can be so obvious to you where it's not obvious to you in place as the parent. It's almost like when the midwives handle your baby and it relaxes as opposed to you handling
1: your baby and it's all uptight yeah I mean I'm really committed to handing power back to the parent to the let's say the woman and actually in that little scenario that you described Penny it can be that in a mum's arms that little person is is smelling the milk of course or knows oh, my mum where's the breast yeah and so immediately you know there's there's all of that switching on of the that we might call them the mammalian reflexes so it gives the woman a sense of oh the is not calm in my arms but if i give her to someone else the baby dials down i've just been putting together a talk about how we can reclaim power really as mothers of babies as parents of babies Wanting to use inclusive language, but acknowledging that by far the sort of heavy workload of caring for babies, both in Australia and around the world, is by women. How can we hand power back? And certainly really evidence-based information is empowering for parents. But in my work, I'm always inviting parents, that woman, to simply start experimenting, offering ideas around how she might experiment, but also acknowledging that some of what I offer, let's say in the possums programs or in the discontented little baby book, might just not seem right for her and her baby. And she'll let that go. But other things she'll think, you know what, that's really worth experimenting with in my situation. And she'll give it a go for a time. That kind of capacity to experiment, knowing that as a mum, you're the best Expert on the baby. Parents are the experts on their own baby. They'll just experiment their way through. You know, we start experimenting from the moment the bubby's born. And frankly, Penny, I'm always saying, well, you experiment until they leave home and then you're thinking, do you know what? I was just getting the hang of that. <laughs> and and they are gone. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: I just look back at my time with a new baby and being so grateful for the people that probably did not know what amazing advice they were giving me at the time. But, for example, until a friend actually sat me down and said, right now, you know that you've, you've got to feed them, they've got to have a little play, and then you'd sort of put them down to sleep I would not have known a, for example that your baby does want to interact with you when they're not feeding It's not an instinctive thing
1: for a lot of people when they do get that baby home. Well the concept of instinct is terribly fraught isn't it mm. I like to say that in a world that's very complex where there's many societal factors that are impacting on the way women and their babies interact, there's one very powerful instinct that we need to acknowledge and that is the desire to protect, to take care of that little person. And in fact in the first months of life we know from a neuroscience point of view that women's brains are highly plastic and become really quite vigilant. That's protective from an evolutionary point of view. So we can acknowledge that kind of instinct if you like and put in place strategies to manage that you know the very busy brain that always seems to want to tell us that we're failing and the, the you know the whirring anxiety in our our tummies. so so all of those strategies i talk about in the discontented little baby book and are integrated into the possums programs in the baby there is of course that very powerful mammalian drive to feed from the mother's breast that suckling instinct that doesn't necessarily need milk in the first few days at all, but just wants the the profound soothing of suckling. And and then more broadly, I talk a lot about the importance of, of that biological hunger within an infant for rich and changing environmental experience, which is often really poorly understood in our world. In fact, parents are much more likely to hear if you want good sleep, don't let your baby get overtired or overstimulated. And yet Penny, believe it or not, we don't use that language at all in our sleep programs, and certainly not using it at all in my book because it's so last century. The concept (laughs) of overstimulation is really out of date. We know that little ones are laying down neural templates in direct response to rich and changing input across all their senses and vestibular stimulation kinesthetic stimulation. So our little ones are often crying inside the home because there's not enough happening from a sensory point of view. And so you'll see in the discontented little baby book and in all the possums programs, we talk a lot about environmental enrichment, about supporting that primary carer and typically there's the first couple of weeks when everything's exhausting and topsy-turvy, but from about two weeks, that powerful hunger for rich and changing input really emerges in babies, and they become unsettled. They'll cry and dial up if there's not enough happening, and typically inside the house there isn't. The four walls are very low sensory for our babies, and so we support primary carers to use their two tools, if you like, to get through the day, which is... Frequent and flexible offers of milk, breastfeeding, or indeed if a woman is needing to use the bottle, the bottle feeding. Frequent and flexibly is a tool just to dial the baby down. We certainly can't overfeed a baby at the breast. And then the second tool is rich and changing sensory input, which happens best if a woman is just out, if the woman is the primary carer, not always, but, but very often, out and about creating... A day for herself that she enjoys, that's highly social, that connects up with parent groups, that is full of exercise, which is very often walking at this time of life, isn't it? Because the babies love it. They drink in being out walking the streets or in the park or if you're out in in, in a rural area, you know, near the bush, whatever, on the farm. But, you know, visiting a, a, a coffee shop or visiting friends, visiting family, anything visiting the workplace getting tasks done at the shops anything that brings that primary carer out of the home pours this lovely rich sensory bath around the baby and just helps keep babies dialed down so i suppose now i did that whole long segue didn't i because you were talking about no one really telling you about say interacting with the baby we don't we don't use the concept of feed place sleep because that comes out of what we would call, I'm saying we because I'm thinking both <laughs> my book and then also the Possum's programs yeah. that come out of the same evidence space. But the sleep training approaches that, that use, say, a feed play sleep concept are trying to disassociate feeds from sleep. So, you know, the advice there would be don't let the little one go to sleep with the breast or the bottle because it builds up bad habits. But actually in my sleep work over many years now, we would say there's, there's actually no evidence to support that this benefits parents despite what you hear and it can be very disruptive for families, making life harder than it needs to be. So we use the concept of enjoying a day as a primary carer, out of the house, moving between the two tools of feeds and rich and changing sensory nourishment And part of that is interacting with the bubby in that lovely little give-and-take, to-and-fro interactions that emerge and that we start to grow as the weeks and the months are passing. But we don't use the concept of feed-place sleep because we find it really disruptive for families.
0: Well, as I said, (laughs) everything changes and you need to find the thing that is going to work for you. One of the things that people would be really interested in talking about
1: crying, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, this is, this is so interesting to unpack, isn't it? Because as I was saying before, from a biological point of view, as parents and particularly as mothers, we are hardwired to dial up when our baby dials up. It's upsetting. And this is because a very powerful instinct is activated to dial the baby down. There's concepts that have been around a lot to do with baby crying that are actually outdated now. One is the concept of the normal crying curve that I'm sure you've heard of, Penny, but it's it's actually outdated. So there's Good work now, a whole systematic review showing that the crying curve is just not an accurate reflection of what happens. What we do know is that in the West, babies will cry for perhaps a couple of hours a day, a plateau from birth for the first six weeks, and then that duration of crying on average in the West drops off to a bit over an hour a day at 12 weeks and then tapers off by about 16 weeks. But it's also really important to share with you that the same work that looks at cry durations across Western societies also shows that crying and fussing is variable according to the the, the kind of infant care strategies that a particular society puts in place. And in fact, if we're just looking at Western societies, we know that babies in Copenhagen who are more likely to be breastfed, who will have on average, let's say, about 10 hours physical contact, whether waking or sleeping with a a loving adult in a 24-hour period, who are likely to receive responsive care. So that's kind of generally trying to set up a pattern of responding to the baby's cues. Those bubbies in Denmark cry half as much as babies in London who are less likely to be breastfed and much more likely to receive a routinized approach to care. So the sleep training approaches, feed, play, sleep approaches, but also These little ones on the whole have a bit less physical contact in a 24-hour period, and it's been averaged out at about six hours in a 24-hour period in London. But they cry twice as much. So there are variables that, you know, there are things that impact on how much babies are crying in any particular society. And in fact, it's really well understood now that In many traditional contexts, bubbies didn't cry much at all. They started cries the same frequency over a 24-hour period, but they didn't have the same crying durations or don't have the same crying durations as we tend to find in in our our advanced economies in Western societies. And so it's been very interesting for me throughout my professional lifetime to try to unpack this and look at, What we can do to dial babies down, even though the first 16 weeks is a time of neurological sensitivity, it is a time when our little ones are more likely to cry. And in fact, once that dial on the sympathetic nervous system turns up, if you like, you'll see that I talk a lot about the dial on the sympathetic nervous system then more and more sympathetic nervous system activity is generated. So so a little one who's dialing up then can move into a crying loop, what I've called a crying loop, sometimes referred to as inconsolable crying. It doesn't always work to respond to our little one's cues, but we try to get in early and build up a pattern of sensible responsiveness to the, the little one's cues over time. And this is where, as health professionals, we want to be able to support and repair some of the things that can really be disruptive to getting in sync with our baby very early on. So, you know, the breastfeeding problems, which which can just be so difficult for women. And of course, lots of families need to use formula because we just can't quite get the breastfeeding working. But these early problems can be quite disruptive and almost alter the the setting on that dial, the sympathetic nervous system dial, in the first weeks of life. And eventually, after 16 weeks, it all settles down and the little one's fine and we don't need to be worrying about long-term effects. But it can just make life really tough in those early days if, as health professionals, we haven't got the the strategies in place to really sort out the breastfeeding early on and frankly we know that much of what's offered unfortunately in breastfeeding support is experience or opinion based because there's not been actually believe it or not that the clinical research that's required really to get everyone on the same page and offering effective interventions with the crying, there's there's variations. I mean, just
0: like as humans, we don't all have the same personality. You know, you you do get some some babies that are just going to be really fussy, and you are going to have some babies that are just you know insanely miracle sleepers. And and comparison is the thief of joy when it comes to new
1: babies. Well, I think that's an important point. Because the truth is we can have babies who only need nine hours in a 24-hour period sleep, let's say 10, hour, 10 minutes nap here, 10-minute nap there during the day, and then a total of nine hours in a 24-hour period. There are newborns who only need nine hours total in a 24-hour period, and they're normal. They're just biologically low sleep need babies. And then we can have a newborn who needs 18 hours total in a 24 hour period. So at the opposite end of the bell curve. And the thing is, we can't teach babies to sleep in that sense, because this is again, just biological variability. So we want to be able to support parents in working with their own babies, sleep regulators, to make sleep as healthy and as manageable as it can possibly be, no matter where your little one sits on that bell curve of of sleep needs. And it is true from, if you like, a temperament point of view. There's there's a, a whole sort of complex interaction between what's happening in the environment around a bubby, you know, what, what kind of approaches families are using, and the development of temperament. But there is the little one who just seems to have that, you know, we all see it between our different children too, let alone between the babies that we encounter in our lives or that I might encounter as a clinician, there is temperament, as you say. But as clinicians, I think, our role is to have strategies for helping families dial that little bubby down as much as possible at the same time as we support families through this really neurologically sensitive 16 weeks when our little ones will cry more. And it can be so incredibly exhausting, emotionally challenging. And all of this I try to sort of lay out for parents in the discontented little baby book in a way that's kind of accessible even if you're exhausted to the bone and you've sleep deprived.
0: <laughs> At least that's something that parents are expecting is for some bits of it to be difficult. But it's it's lovely to have a resource that can take a look at some of the different things that might be going on and trying to find a solution that that works best for
1: your baby and for you. Mm. See, quite a lot of, of what I'm doing in the discontented little baby book just flips popular advice upside down. And much like the allergy thing that we talked about at the beginning, where I was saying, hang on, We just can't keep putting our breastfeeding mums on all these elimination diets unless there's a really, really good reason, which does happen, but but it's quite rare, because we're increasing the risk of allergy. And now that's mainstream seven years later. But there's other ways too in which my work is just flipping the way we make sense of things upside down. So often, for instance, let's say we've got a six- or an eight-week-old bubby and you're not getting any sleep. So, you know, a parent... Will say oh my god from from 1am until 5am my little sweetheart was just groaning and grunting and writhing and then I'd hear some wind being passed or then there'd be a puke he must have gut pain it must be gut pain that's the problem then parents try all sorts of things they might try burping a lot more and holding the baby upright whereas Penny believe it or not I would argue very strongly that we don't need to be burping our bubbies or holding them upright and that that can be quite disruptive. Or maybe it's reflux or or maybe it is allergy. What's going on? Little one's in pain. But we just turn that upside down because, in fact, when the sympathetic nervous system dials up, then the gut is like a second brain and the gut is highly innervated by the sympathetic nervous system. So it also activates and then you will get a puke or you will hear some flatulence being passed. But actually what's happening there is that the little one's circadian clock is not well aligned with yours and so the little one's rousing very frequently but not moving into those blocks of deeper sleep which are often only a couple of hours long but at least that's manageable. And so we work with this both in the clinic and you'll see in the discontented Little Baby book I unpack this for parents and say, well, why don't you try making sense of it like this? Let's work on the sleep patterns and get better alignment, better consolidation of sleep with the parents' sleep needs. And I know from the research, from our evaluations, it just transforms life for parents, these new evidence-based approaches. There really is a growing movement of health professionals who are taking on board this work because they find it really effective in the clinic. So we've got, I think it's 250 or close to 300 health professionals around Australia and some from overseas participating in our accreditation pathways for the Neuroprotective Developmental Care or the possums programs and there's about 100 now practising as NDC accredited practitioners in Australia and you can find them on the possumsonline.com website and so they're just finding their practice is transformed and it's so much more empowering for parents, actually. So there's, there's, there's that. There's a growing movement amongst parents to adopt the possums or the NDC programs. Um, our research shows the efficacy of what we're doing so far. And, um, and then it is true that... The the care of mothers and babies is very sadly a highly conflicted space where health professionals come at caring for the the parents and their bubby, you know, wearing particular lenses that make it difficult for them to understand why other health professionals coming with different lenses are offering different kinds of advice. So there can be quite a lot of interdisciplinary tension in this space but I would argue this is this is typical of paradigm shift really when we're on the cusp of paradigm shift there's typically quite a lot of turbulence and then we move over into a new paradigm and that sort of tension largely abates so i would say both in australia and internationally the care of of mothers and babies parents and babies really is on the cusp of a paradigm shift into evidence-based evolutionarily aligned breastfeeding centric approaches to the care of mothers and babies and when i say breastfeeding centric in that sense of breastfeeding being foundational it's absolutely vital to me that there's no judgment at all applied to any family around how they're feeding their baby but we also want a state-of-the-art breastfeeding support for those who choose to or wanting breastfeeding to succeed non-judgment around those who've not been able to make breastfeeding succeed and then we use strategies such as paste bottle feeding that support those families who are using formula, are using bottles to have, again, the most enjoyable feeding experience with their little sweetheart that, that can possibly be supported.
0: Yes, it is definitely a refreshing inclusion of formula feeding
1: when it's needed. Absolutely. it's. It, you know, these are big societal problems. It's, it's just unconscionable that any family would experience any judgement around how they feed milk to their baby. As a health system we need to be urgently looking at why there isn't the research into clinical breastfeeding support that we're needing to be able to offer effective strategies without resorting to unnecessary medical diagnoses in the care of breastfeeding families. But we also need to take responsibility for the fact That as a health system, we're often not able to offer consistent, effective support for breastfeeding. And women try so hard very often and there comes a point where we just need to be grateful that there's uh, complementary feeding options available.
0: Dr. Pamela Douglas, author of The Discontented Little Baby Book, that's making its way into bookstores now. And if you'd like to share this interview with somebody that you think needs to hear it, just search Baby Talk online and you'll find our website. Or why don't you identify the share button on the app you're using to listen to the podcast. And that share button lets you send a link to someone else via email, a text, or even a message button on Facebook. Last week on Baby Talk, we spoke to the CEO of KidSafe Victoria. And we looked at the dangers of so many products that are designed and marketed for children. Button batteries. So at the moment, we're seeing around 20
1: children a week that present to various hospital departments across the country after they've ingested a button battery.
0: That hair-raising story and many others are on the Baby Talk podcast series, online on the ABC Listen app and on iTunes. I'm Penny Johnston, and I will see you next time on Baby Talk. ABC Baby Talk is a weekly podcast on ABC Digital Radio, wherever you get your podcasts and on the ABC Listen app. Like us on Facebook to find out as soon as a new episode is ready. Just search for ABC Baby Talk. You've been listening to an ABC podcast.
1: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.